This is Chris Shelton, critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of podcasting greatness here on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio. You can, if you subscribe through uh, iHeartRadio, you'll get notifications, all kinds of fun stuff. I, I don't get paid or anything, by the way, for for pimping all these platforms. I just want you guys to know I, you can get this po- this podcast all over the place. So please do, and please do share it around. I would very much like your help to grow this channel and grow this show. And I am joined, as you all can see, if you're watching uh, with video on YouTube, by John Atak, a show uh, favorite and uh, wonderful guest uh, I've had on many, many times. John, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, let me do my little bit. I'm John Atak. Um, for anybody who hasn't noticed that yet, um, and I think uh, I may have miscounted that this is our twenty-third show together. <laughs> <laughs> that was That's amazing. Wow, I yeah. didn't know it'd been that many. Yeah, I just so kind of uh, I just kind of throw them in the John Atak playlist on my channel. Yeah. I've never counted them, you know, but. Mm. Yeah, we've had we've had a, I would say we have had some of the most wide ranging and um, I don't know I guess you know I, 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 I intellectual you know conversations <laughs> highbrow highbrow conversations highbrow yes yes highbrow um, but I but I think it's all in good fun and I think that we are uh, I, I think we've done a pretty good job so far of trying to throw some things out some food for thought some Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that kind of stuff for the, for the people at large about Scientology, about cults, about control, about manipulation and influence and these these nefarious things that people get up to out there? Um, and here we are going into show number 24. And I thought this time we might, uh, you know, I'm a little hot to trot on academia and stuff, and I thought we might get into mm-hmm. some of that. But I wanted to throw something at you first, John. I thought about something, a little bit of a reframe that I wanted to throw at you and see what you think. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's something that you and I have had to live with for years and years. And I think everybody who's, who's a content creator around the subject of cults gets this. And that is this constant refrain, this continual commentary we hear from a certain group of people that you'd have to be an idiot to join a cult. You'd have to be a stupid moron to join a cult. Everybody who does this is low IQ, moronic, stupid, imbecilic, oafish, whatever. And that is the, re- and, they, and I've, I've seen this for some time now as a kind of psychological protective mechanism that people sort of cloak themselves in that they're stupid, I'm not, I get to laugh at them or looky-loo or rubberneck at them, those stupid people who join that stupid cult and look at how much smarter I am than they are. I, I kind of think that's what's at the bottom of that. Well, and they, they are much smarter than we are. What yeah. can I say? We're, we're, we can barely string two words together. And, you know, I don't know how on earth you managed to get on a master's degree, given your, you know, moronic IQ level, but... What can we say? Um, I, I was actually today answering a, a comment on YouTube where, you know, which they, they come and go in this this vein. How could anybody? How could anybody like John Atak get involved in something like this? Well, it was a long time ago, and obviously I was a lot younger. But I pointed out that I knew seven 
um, Oxford University students who were recruited at the same time. One of them uh, became a Harley Street doctor, so was at the top of his profession. Another one um, with a degree in um, politics, philosophy and economics from Oxford University, you know, the top 1% of the top 1% of the top 1% of the top 1%. <laughs> he ended up... Um, being an executive at the Flag Land Base and doing the Rehabilitation Project Force. How could anybody be stupid enough to do that? Um, the reality is that, that let's, let's move back in history, right? The founder of modern science, Isaac Newton, the man who put science on the map and gave us the scientific method as we see it. Well, he was a religious nutcase. He spent most of his life actually practising alchemy. He spent far more time practising alchemy you know, trying to transmute lead into gold um, than he did practising optics or the things that, that he is now regarded for. He was a, a tyrannical, dreadful man who tried to destroy the reputation of Robert Hooke. Um, and he was a Unitarian. And if he'd been caught, he could have been executed for that, believing that uh, Jesus was not divine. So, or, or Galileo, the other founder of modern science, who had two children, two daughters, both of whom he put into a convent. So that's how much he disbelieved in religion. And they were locked into this. It was a, you know, an order where they weren't allowed out of the building. One of them died in misery and the other became the abbess. Um, go on to Dalton, the Christian minister. Or, um, well, what about Faraday, the founder of, of electrical science? He was a member of, of the Sandemanians, a 20-member cult group. We could keep on going, and you know that I, I do. Um, but the, the point is that historically, if you looked at Wolfgang Pauli, Niels Bohr, uh, Einstein, they had the wackiest beliefs imaginable. And yet they are among the people of the greatest achievement scientifically. So it's uh, – and I think you're right that it's a kind of self-protective mechanism that we all like to think that we're not as stupid as the other people around us. And hey, the difference is, I know I'm as stupid as everybody else. I know I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I sat there with this guy and he'd come from the ruling body of Scientology, the 14 members of the Watchdog Committee. And I spent two evenings interviewing him in secret many, many years ago, 1984, a memorable year, as, as George Orwell pointed out. And I'm, at the end of this, you know, we've talked about six hours in all, and he's told me all of these horrible things about what's happened at the top of Scientology. And he says to me, the great thing is, John, will never be conned again. And I just looked at him and said, no, the great thing is I know I'm gullible, so I'm a li little more careful than I used to be. Exactly. Exactly. That's the lesson I think all of us, you know, should be walking away from this with. And a little bit of humility, it does help. Well, exactly. And, you know, I mean, shit, even 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 Hubbard commented on the humility of vast wisdom. But I'm thinking of a little bit of a reframe on this in terms yeah. of how we think about people who get into extremist belief sets. And and it's and if you have to use the word stupid and it's not really a well-advised word in this in this realm, but because intelligence literally has nothing to do with wrangling somebody into a situation like this. It's not yeah. through intelligence that you do it. So it's really kind of a side issue, but everybody keeps bringing it up. So I thought, what if I said, look, it's not that you have to be stupid to join a cult. It's that people, 
in the end, if people effectively make themselves stupid in order to hold on to a belief that they cherish, a belief set, you know, an idea. They, that idea has to be true. And once you start thinking along those lines, once you start grabbing onto something and saying, this is on an altar of truth and cannot be questioned, anything, any principle, I don't care if it's religious or not, it could be in science, it could be in fashion, it could be in art, whatever it is. Once you do that, and it's unquestionable, it cannot be addressed, cannot be criticized, cannot be messed with, that's what makes you stupid. It's not that you're stupid and then you join a cult. It's that you join a cult and then you keep yourself stupid in order to stay in. Again, it's a problem word. It's not really the accurate word to use. But if we have to associate that word, I'm kind of thinking, what about that as a reframe? Hmm. I, I, some years ago, uh, 1991, I can be accurate about this. I did an intervention back in, in the old days. I did some of these things. I, you know, it was all ethical and proper. I didn't grab anybody or lock anybody up and I didn't force anybody to do anything. But I did an intervention with Hannah and Jerry Whitfield back in July, 1991. And it was very scary because uh, seven carloads of Scientologists turned up, including a, a private investigator called Donald William Cooper from Las Vegas. Wow. And they really went after us. And for four days, we managed to evade them. They knew where we were, but they never found out who we were talking to. So every day, and we we, we had these, uh, it just happened that they were neighbors of, a neighbor of, of, of this guy was, it had, had come out of the Marines here. And uh, so, and he had a friend staying with him who happened to have come from the Special Boat Squadron, which is like the Navy equivalent of the SAS. And he had been in 14 Int, which is the counter-terrorism unit in Northern Ireland. So he was helping us every day. So it was this kind of John le Carre novel that we were living in, being pursued by the Marx Brothers, uh, or you know, Scientology's Branch One, as it's also known. But I, it really messed with my head. I went without sleep for about five days. And when I got home, because I was never, you know, you lived through such trauma, Chris. You lived through years and years of abuse and trauma. I didn't. Right. I was a public member of Scientology. I had a fine time. You know, it was a bit weird. And they took, you know, 9,000 pounds from me in nine years. So, you know, whatever. But now suddenly I've been sleep deprived. I've been put in this high pressure environment. And I started to realize what it must be like for core members of authoritarian groups, the, yeah. the sort of pressure that you're under. And something popped into my head over the next few days, which was, I had this assumption, which I had from infancy, because I was taught it in infancy, that I should love everybody. I grew up in a Christian household, which was a genuine, pleasant household. I was very lucky. And, you know, my mom was a very gentle, sweet person. Um, it's not to say that she didn't have a, the occasional temper fit, but don't we all? But so she believed, you know, in this loving God. And I was taught that I had to love everybody. And suddenly this, this assumption popped up and it was, I couldn't think about it. I realized that I couldn't think about it. I realized it had to be true. And that gave me this notion of the unquestionable assumption, which we all have, you know, um, 
in Ken Burns Jazz, there's this wonderful old critic who's talking about having grown up in the South and been taught that blacks were a different species to whites, you know, closely related to apes. And then he saw, saw Louis Armstrong play and he went, this is the only genius I've ever encountered. And he's black, you know, uh, and his assumptions, his cognitive dissonance was roused and he got through it. Yeah, we, we protect ourselves and we, yeah, that belief in invulnerability, it, transfers into the belief in in the assumption yeah in newton's case it was the assumption that jesus was not divine but however there was a code in the bible that would give him the dimensions of solomon's temple which would be the dimensions of the universe that's what isaac newton believed wow hmm. i did a bit of a nutter really well, a little a bit, bit too nice. much mercury in his tea. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty wild, especially mm. considering this is the same mind that conceived and 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 put forth calculus. Yeah, so of course it, I mean, it was. Wow, it was it was yeah. Leibniz who first published, and um, Newton. Then, actually, this is a story. Mm. Um, it was only in the 1990s that it came out that the Royal Society's investigation, which proved that. Um, uh, Leibniz had stolen the fluxions, as as Newton called them, and called them calculus. It was only that the papers were open. The papers were opened in the 1990s, and it found out that it was a one-man committee that investigated this, and the, it was the president of the Royal Society, Isaac Newton. He'd done the investigation and proved it. It's he also worth saying himself. that he, yeah, yeah. So okay. It, it, you know, but yes, he also gave us the law of gravity, the inverse square law, laws of optics, all sorts of I mean, important stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> but he did all of that as a young man. Right. As, as an older man, he just became a pompous git who um, lorded it over other people. His fight against Hook, he, he said um, that if he had seen further, it was because he had stood on the shoulders of giants. Yep. Some people think that's a reference to Robert Hooke having been a very small man. And when you look at Hooke's incredible work, the micrographia in the same period, you see that he and probably Robert Boyle should also be there with Newton as founders. Um, Newton was so angry at Hooke that he actually had his uh, portrait taken down at the Royal Society and burned. Wow. So wow. that's your rational, scientific... <laughs> non-stupid human being yeah exactly um, which i think really is what we're trying to say is you know th there's no such thing as the perfect rational human being it's it's it, it, it's it's a ludicrous concept to begin with and and i think if we can sort of you know take that straw man and sort of burn it you know in effigy mm -hmm. as it deserves to be then we can take a better more rational look at what rationality actually is and, mm. and what stupidity is, because it's incredibly context-specific. And I think we can point to any number, as you've already done, of incredibly brilliant people who did incredibly brilliant work in one area of their life, in one context, whether it was when they were younger, or whether it was in this subject or field, or whether mm. it, whatever it might be, here's greatness personified, and then in the same person, the same flawed human being going completely off the rails in some other area, some other context, you know, surprise. I mean, you, <laughs> you, know? You, you, 
you come to the heart of the problem. I, I've been out here for ooh, 38 years now, um, not just talking about Scientology. You know, since the early 90s, I've talked about terrorism, about gangs, about all sorts of authoritarian groups, abusive relationships, human trafficking, pedophile grooming, all of these things. And I see certain elements that are common to all of these things, demonstrably common to all of these things. And I see that that at the level of government, they're not being tackled at all. In our educational institutions, they're not being tackled at all. With There is some exception to that. There is some good work on bullying that's gone into our schools. Mm -hmm. But to understand that, that there is a human predator, there is a type of person who is very recognisable, very easily recognisable, um, and you can teach kids about this. You can teach them from the age of five, yes. you know, um, that you can teach intelligent disobedience, Ira Chalef's remarkable subject or his courageous followership, how to keep a leader in check. Um, you can teach assertiveness where people are allowed to express themselves. And you can teach that there are certain types of people who have certain characteristics that are very recognizable. So I went out there and, uh, you know, in 2015, helped to set up the Open Minds Foundation, going, yeah, the world will want to know this. Here we are. We've got a platform for this. And answer came there, none. People are convinced. We all know that advertising works on other people, but it has absolutely no effect whatsoever on me. Yep. And these Nike shoes I'm wearing, it's because they're the best shoes in the world, <laughs> not because of the advertising. Yes. And so I've wrestled with this problem for, for decades, and I think that there is a reason why we do this. And that is, if I didn't think that my perception and interpretation of the world was correct, I might find it hard to draw breath. Bingo. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and it has to, we have to be right, or at least we have to think we are. Otherwise, mm. how could we ever get up in the morning? Right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's akin to not the same as at all, but it's akin to the free will argument. It's like, you know, once you can convince somebody they have no free will, they never want to get up it again. I mean, why would I want to live life? It's, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> Nothing I do matters because it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with me. And it's and it's just not that way at all, of course. And that's that would be a, a silly way of walking away from a free will argument is thinking you're completely powerless. That's not that's not the point of that. But um, yeah, I think that um, it's a it's a weird phenomenon. Humans are such a study in uh, our psychology can can be such an interesting study in contradictions. Mm. You know that we have to be right. And we will we will proudly be wrong in order to be right, you know, kind of thing. We will we will do these things. And I think this has a lot to do with exactly, you know, your uh, whole thrust of this, which is, you know, opening our minds. I mean, you've got you got a whole book on this that you've just put out. Oh, look at that. <laughs> You know, and it's certainly oh, it goes. It's that way. <laughs> opening our minds, and and there you are addressing this. You know these exact things. Yeah, and you know the the thought was to just to see. You know, what's the simplest? <clears throat> excuse me. What's the simplest route to this? Mm -hmm. You know, we said at the beginning. You know, hopefully, um, jovially, highbrow intellectual. My my whole work has been to look at what the highbrow intellectuals have found out, the clever people, you know, um, people like Stanley Milgram or Philip Zimbardo, um, what is it they discovered? What's the world that they got a, a view on? And how can we 
explain that so that absolutely anybody, you know, I mean, I would like to be getting this over to uh, 13-year-olds. That would yes. be my perfect audience because at that age, you've still got in enough, you know, I, I, you and I have both dealt with a lot of people who are trying to recover and we've had our own recovery to go through, um, which I think in your case was pretty arduous from the conversation we had a year or so, yeah. you know, we, we went through complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. And I apologize for that because I didn't realize that it, it might be, you know, so I'm sorry about that. But I think having said that, it's probably a very instructive video for anybody who's had the experience, a similar experience to your own. And the horror is that millions of people have had an experience similar to your own. Yes. In fact, the whole population of North Korea and most of the population of China and it, this is authoritarianism, this idea that, that there are people who believe themselves to be God and, and sh that they should be followed and that their attitudes are right and people should do as they're told. Their authoritarian leaders, and probably, and I keep using this number, about 60% of the population are authoritarian followers. They go, well, I don't really know. Uh, I can't think properly. Uh, and he looks very handsome and... Uh, I like his hair, so uh, I'll do what he says. So we, you know, and in uncertain times, and when has humanity ever been in a certain time? Let, you know, let's, let's, it doesn't really happen that often. In uncertain times, we believe people who say they are certain. Yes. And, right. you know, it's one of the errors of Scientology. Hubbard said knowledge is certainty. Yeah. And I can remember as a Scientologist going, no, knowledge is uncertainty. Knowledge is realizing you don't know, as Socrates and Lao Tzu both pointed out. Um, it, knowledge is humility um, and realizing how little you know. Whereas the authoritarian is, yeah, I know the path to go. We'll build a wall. Yep. And then um, that will keep uh, you know, the Belarusians or whoever it is, I'm not making any specific reference here, out. That'll keep us separate from the dreadful other, you know, whoever the dreadful other happens to be. That's right. And so we get right. these divisions between, you know, the libtards on, on one side and the repturds on the other side. Yep. And, and I'm kind of going, I don't want to be on any sides. Exactly. And that's really where I've come to now too, politically, ideologically. Yeah. I'm sick of both sides. I, <laughs> I craved human rights. I embraced human rights after Scientology for obvious reasons, right? As you yeah. just mentioned, you know, my human rights were violated on a daily basis as a Sea Org member, and that was for years. So coming out of Scientology, of course, I wanted to embrace the concept of human rights and freedom and equity, you know, uh, equality under the law, that kind of stuff, you know, hey, can't we all just get along and had a very kind of I, I guess I'll say Pollyannish. I mean, not not that not quite that naive, but certainly that desire for people to to get along and and for things. Why to go don't well. we just love each other, man? Right? Can't we all just get Smoke along? Smoke some of this, man. You're right. But you know, then reality hits, and and you and you know, and I've lived in the big wide world long enough now to know that. Scientology was bad, but it's not like this is the polar opposite. There's all kinds of nonsense goes on in the big wide world. And we have to be wary. We have to be careful. We have to engage in critical thinking. And in fact, one of the points I wanted to bring up from what you were just talking about with critical thinking is if I was going to reduce, and I'm all about reductionism, because I try to give people little principles they can use. And here's a, here's a real key one is 
so much of our problems come from this this innate need we have for certainty for you know for for you know stable solid simple answers so much of our trouble comes from that and so what we really see i think is um in terms of critical thinking principles the 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 thing that's going to keep you out of trouble more than anything else i think i think if you could adopt this and use this in your life it would be you really got to question everything. You really got to be willing, I should say, to question everything. There is, There should not be any titanium pillars of belief that you have in your life that cannot ever be questioned. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we see this. I mean, I think this is an important point about religion, that mm-hmm. I have friends who are theologians, Christian theologians, um, and I absolutely respect their view because they are willing to talk to me about it. Yep. When I challenge them on any point, they're willing to say, well, you, how about looking at it this way? Yep. And I have in, in this way actually understood more deeply what they believe. The same is true, you know, in the Jewish religion and in the Muslim religion, that I am fully aware of people who use their religion to to live a, a decent life, yes. to, to help the people around them. And I step back from that, and, and it's like, you know, my opinion about where the world came from and where it's going is mine. It's my metaphor, it's my, set of, my fairy stories, my myths, it's how I live. Um, and they have theirs. And if they're willing to talk about it, if they can talk about it without losing their temper, then we can probably get somewhere. There is this problem of the emotional content where people put up walls and everything becomes black and white, everything becomes polarized, and you are an opponent, an enemy, a Satan, a devil, if you disagree with their view. And they then twist these beliefs. For me, the fundamental belief, and and I don't believe I should love everybody, and I don't even seek to do it anymore. I've got as far as the Hippocratic Oath, which says, first, do no harm. I would like to point out to any doctors who've taken the Hippocratic Oath that it's an oath made to the god Apollo, you know, (laughs) so it does belong to another religious system altogether. But I do agree with that. You know, I, I don't want to hurt anybody. And I would like to be helpful. I'd like to make things better, to ameliorate things. So whenever I see principles that speak about hurting people, you know, where the Old Testament talks about um, masturbation, gay people, and touching pigskin, all being offences which can be stoned to death. And I don't think that George Bush Jr. understood that when he complained about um, gay people. He touched pigskin, which is also, I'm afraid, a capital offence in the Old Testament. So, you know, any football players out there, Exactly. (laughs) That's right. But so it, it is the intention, and if the intention that that a person has is is positive, you know, as the Prophet Muhammad says, we people can be beasts and they can be angels, and um, that has proved to be so true. It, yes, um, exactly, and and it, and it really depends on the context, you yeah. know, which is another one of those principles that I think is really foundational for 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 critical thinking or for you know having a successful life is realizing that context is king when you put out a principle when you put out a statement of truth you have to at least think about 
under what context am I speaking? Because yeah, sure, you know, I, and we're not talking about opinions here. I'm talking about facts. If you're going to make truth claims, right? God, you know, uh, God is good. Well, uh, okay, sure, you know, uh, God's also dumps churches on people sometimes too. If you want to follow along those lines, in other words, be willing to see that there are more than just your side to a thing. I guess is what I, that was. That was pretty poor example, but. That, you know, this kind of, if you're willing to consider one side, consider another, and you'll actually find yourself benefited from that, you know? Yeah, and, and I mean, God and good are two words that are cognate. They come from the same root. Uh, so mm. technically, that which is good is God. Um, you also get whole, healthy, and holy. They all come from the same word. Mm. Um, to be complete. To be holy. Um, oh, that's and so interesting. We, we go off down all sorts of. I mean, a, a tremendous amount of my time since my teens and all the way through Scientology and beyond, I have been interested in mysticism, but not in the popular meaning of that word, which means lunatic beliefs, but um, in people who have sought the truth, like the Buddha, Lao Tzu, um, Muhammad. Christ, the, the people who have sought the truth, and they have put forward their views, and it's fascinated me, and I've um, cherry-picked, uh, people criticise me for this, from these views, and said, well, I, I think this bit is correct. I've, I've even uh, published a translation, character-by-character character translation of Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, which I still, it, it maintained me all the way through Scientology. I, I would say, well, this guy was wiser than Hubbard, you know. So I, I never got the, the God thing about Hubbard. He, he just seemed like a guy. And when he'd say nasty things, I'd recognize them as nasty things and say, he's wrong. He must have been in a really bad mood when he wrote that. And it meant that when I got to the end and said, oh, he was a lying bastard, and I don't believe this anymore. And I then went to other people and said, here, here's where he says he was a war hero. Here's where he says that he didn't see any service in World War II, which is in an interview in December 1950 with Look magazine, just in case anybody wants to check I, it. I'm actually, gonna, I'm actually gonna need that quote for my paper. <laughs> okay, there you go. There you see, go. I, I, I can be useful. But when I realized that he had to be a liar because he was contradicting himself, I went to my fellow independent Scientologists, and they they said, no, there's a justification. My favorite was the former commanding officer of the St. Hill Foundation, Vicky Ballard, bless her, lovely woman. And she, she said to me, when I showed her the contradictions about the end of the war, where he's crippled and blinded in Oatnall Hospital, but he's also down uh, beating three pet petty officers up in Hollywood, uh, the 25th of July, 1945, he even dates it. Yep. Um, she said, oh, I, that's easy to explain. I said, really? I can't understand it. She said, he had two bodies. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, that is easy to explain. And I said, and all this stuff about his war wounds, he didn't have any war wounds, he didn't see combat. And she said, yes, he did. I know he did. I said, how do you know? She said, because I served alongside him. But when I asked her, you know, what she thought of Thomas Moulton, she'd never heard of him, even though she'd served alongside Ron Hubbard. And when I asked her about, you know, the names of vessels, or she didn't have any memory. The typical Scientology thing about reincarnation is, I know it's true, but I can't remember anything yeah, about it. I have to admit that that is true. And she, yeah. a year or two later, she threw Scientology away and, you know, bless her. But 
that really stunned me that somebody would go, oh, he had two bodies. I can rationalize this in this way. Was, oh, no. You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's wild how far down the rabbit hole people can go to rationalize certain things. And we see this actually, uh, it's laughable. It's it's worthy of ridicule. I mean, I really do believe it's, it is truly humorous and laughable, but it's also sad when you see the quotes from um, the independent Scientologist that Tony posts on his blog on a daily basis, he overheard in the free zone is, and he, and he, and he has access to their social media sites. So he quotes from them. And they are unbelievable, the things that they talk about. What double bodies is just the, is, is the lightest of explanations for some of Hubbard's nonsense. You know, he, I mean, some of the, some of the places they go are, are, are a little scary. They're so demented. They're so, they're so delusional, you know. Well, I mean, any group that would choose the acronym APIS to describe itself has got to have something fundamentally wrong in its understanding of language. Yeah, we're the Association of Professional Independent Scientologists. It's like, okay. And, and the, the, you know, the conversations I had with the wonderful space cowboy, Andy Nolch, you know, where I don't believe John Adak because he doesn't believe in aliens. He doesn't like Donald Trump. He doesn't like Putin. I don't like Putin. God, who likes Putin? Right. Well, Donald Trump does, but and Berlusconi did. But it, it was, you know, rebutting that and patiently taking it apart and then saying to Andy, look at what I've, I've had to say and come back. And it's just like, I've been down to the beach and the water level hasn't moved, so there's no global warming. So I'm going, they don't have tides in Melbourne? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Weird. Yeah, well, and, and again, it sort of... I, I wasn't trying to maneuver this, but but it, here it comes again. You know, people make themselves stupid in order to hold on to beliefs. Hmm. Yeah. It, I, I really think that is a more correct framing of the problem, you know, than stupid people adopt bad beliefs. I think people adopt bad beliefs and then make themselves stupid to, to retain them because of the emotional reassurance, the certainty factor, the, you know, somehow it brings some level of comfort or or conversely it creates or reinforces a worldview that for some reason this person has to subscribe to it doesn't have to be a pleasant experience in order to hold on you know voraciously to a belief you could be holding on to it in terror because you've been scared so hard that you are afraid to let it go you know? yeah and, and the 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 paradox has just become overwhelming. Um, how could decent ethical people ever accept slavery? Yeah. And slavery, you know, at the moment, there are 35 million slaves in the world, according to the United Nations. 13 million of them are in India. Now, I, for more than 20 years, didn't buy anything from South Africa because of apartheid. Uh, during that time, 38 blacks died in detention, were killed by the police in detention. During the same period, 180 Aborigines were killed in Australian <laughs> detention, and nothing happened there. And then we go to India and we say there are still 13 million slaves in India. Why are we trading with India? Right. Why, why are we trading with a country which is led by a, a fan of Adolf Hitler, Andrew Modi? Um, why is the world the way it is? And then you, you start looking at some of the paradoxes. Here's a good one. It is legal 
in most Western nations to commit suicide. If you want to kill yourself, you can. It used to be illegal. It's now legal. You can do it. Um, however, you can't take drugs. Right. So you can harm yourself as much as you like, but you can't take drugs. Now, the law is there to protect society. It's not to protect the individual from him or herself. Mm-hmm because you can commit suicide. So the law's permitted the most extreme act you can commit against yourself, yet if you want to take drugs. And we can look at some of the extremes of that. You know that um, I'm reading a book at the moment called Drug Use for Grown-Ups by uh, the chair in psychology at uh, Columbia University, uh, Carl Hart. And uh, I like the title. And, uh, I mean, he's pretty much preaching to the choir. He hasn't told me anything yet that I haven't worked out. But he publicly admits, uh, not, you know, the chair in psychology at Columbia University, he publicly admits that he uses heroin, MDMA, you know, all sorts of drugs. And he says, you know, I have the right to do this. And I kind of look at it and go, you know, America's prisons are full to bursting point with people who are on mandatory sentences for smoking a joint in yep. a state where that's illegal or what have you. And you look at all of this construction and all of the wasted money, all of the wasted lives, all of the racism that's built into it, that yep. if you're a Latino or black, you are far more likely to be caught, though drug usage is the same. And then you kind of go, oh, hang on, in 2010... The Lancet, one of the premier medical journals in the world, published a review of drug harms, the the biggest study ever done, headed by Professor Nutt at Imperial College. And he pointed out which drugs were the most dangerous in terms of their social and personal effect. Hmm. And top of the list was not cannabis. Uh, Cannabis got 25 points because it smoked with tobacco but zero in terms of social personal harm as far as he could make out from this massive study. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't cannabis. It wasn't cocaine, which I think got 53 points. It wasn't heroin, which got 54. The number one drug in terms of damage to the fabric of society and individual health is alcohol. 100,000 people die every year in the US from alcohol-related problems. You think about how many... Uh, people are murdered while somebody's under the influence of alcohol. How many car crashes happen when somebody's under the influence of alcohol? And kind of again, why are we doing this? Why aren't yes. we saying if you cause harm, if you damage society, then that's wrong and and we should restrain you? Rather than creating this situation where, you know, I here, cannabis is completely illegal. You can get 14 years in prison for a first offence. Nobody does anymore because in a tolerant society, you have stupid laws that nobody enforces. Yes. And I've talked to several police officers who tell me that they think this is a really stupid law. One of them said to me, he said, do I get called out on a Sunday to a car park, a parking lot, where all the windscreens of the cars have been smashed in by cannabis users? No. Do I get called out because somebody got drunk and did that? Yes. So, so but people get religious. Yes, they do. That's the right do. word about it. Yep. They decide that this is evil and you mustn't do it. And so, I mean, we had a, the first man to be busted for cannabis after the Second War in this country was a black man. 
had one joint and he got eight years in prison. Oh my God. Eight years? Jesus. And you, you dig into the reasons for it. In 1923, Egypt went to the League of Nations and said, we want to make cannabis illegal. Nobody, it wasn't illegal anywhere at that time. And Britain abstained from the vote. In 1924, a book called The Black Candle was published by a woman who used the pseudonym Janie Cannock, believe, believe it or not. And in this book, it said that cannabis would lead to miscegenation, to black people and white people having sex together. And based on solely that evidence, no scientific evidence, the Canadian Parliament passed a law banning cannabis. Four years later, the British Parliament followed suit. And when you look back at the laws on cocaine, heroin, opium, they're all racist. They're all based upon miscegenation. You know, our, our white virgins will smoke dope and go and sleep with black men or Chinese men or, you know, whatever. Yeah, and it's, it, the impurity oh, of it all is just so offensive, you know. It's such let's, a, let's, it, let's grow up. Let, let's yeah, be able right? to track back through history, see why we're doing certain things and not waste our... You know, all of those poor people in prison because of mandatory sentencing in the US, it is so stupid. Oh. So joining a cult, well, that cult could could be the judiciary system. It could be the government. It could be the authoritarian systems. Yep. Um, and I, let me put in a line here, which is to say I have a tremendous respect for first responders, for, for the police, um, for the fire service, for the things they do. But I am well aware of the authoritarian nature of those groups. All too often, we had a situation with a, a young fireman who was um, most definitely hazed and abused so that he would not get a position within the fire service in the US. And you know that case is, is going on. I, I can't name names. But the evidence I saw was outrageous that in... In this day and age, these kind of childish, sadistic practices are still a part of the fire service in yeah. the United States. Come yeah. on. Well, we see that sort of thing in lots and lots of groups, of course, you know, the toxic yeah. masculinity as it has been described in, in some quarters, etc. There's lots yes. of ways we can talk about this. And I think... The way I sort of, when I get the sort of 30-foot look, when I can kind of back away and really sort of, you know, a little more objectively look at the situations like this, I see the fact that when groups of people get together, little hierarchies are formed, you know, and there is status, and, and status exists. It's an organic thing. We can't get away from it. We, we naturally just go there and um you know if, if if there's two people in a room you know both of them are going to have reasons to think they're better than the other person in the room and if there's a third person there one of them or both of them will probably engage in some sort of sales pitch to that third person as to why they're better than the other person and thus the games begin and let the shenanigans ensue right and this is human behavior 101 so from that, from these kind of impulses, I think we get all the trouble because we're got well, we, you know, we all know, we all figured out millions of years ago that getting together in groups is a really, really great way to survive better. 
we can take down herds of mastodon and bison and tigers and lions and bears and all that where we can't do it by ourselves individually each one of us are powerless against even a you know what, what do you do how do you take down a giraffe good luck right but together we are mighty right many hands make a lighter load all of that but what we have is you know these negative consequences these negative possibilities that come from this and i think those negative consequences come from this phenomena that we describe as the human predator. We get a bad batch, we get a bad mix, a bad apple in the mix. We get a we get a poison pill. We get somebody who not just thinks they're better than the other guy for reason X, Y, and Z in this certain area, because it's demonstrably true that you're better than me in some areas and I'm better than you in some areas. That's not, that's not a false statement. But to then forward, the, I think the predator problem is oh no, I'm the one who's better than everybody at everything. I'm the one who should be in charge of everybody. And I have no qualifications or credible reason for that, but I'm gonna say it anyway, and I'm gonna make all these people believe it. And I'm gonna use really crafty words or very manipulative language or very manipulative activities in order to do that, to make that happen. I'll, I'll whisper some lies to this guy and I'll go over and I'll whisper some lies to this girl and, and then they'll, then they'll, you know, it'll be to my advantage that they'll be fighting one another or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a million and one variations, but it comes down to the poison pill, the predator in the mix. I think that's what messes with this. Now, I approach things like that because I have a psychological bent. I, I, I'm a psychology guy. I'm not a sociology guy or, a, you know, as much. I kind of dig into the realm of sociology from time to time, but I've always bounced out of it because it's been an area of uh, well, I guess I could say that it's really easy to get into some mass confusion when you start talking sociology, including with sociologists. I've, I've interviewed sociologists. I've, I've had long phone conversations with friends who are sociologists. And it's all you always walk away a little more confused than you began. <laughs> It's hard to nail down, you know, the, the sociology stuff. So I so I tend to default to the psychology thing and mm -hmm. and that's where my view comes in of predators and, and that that's the problem with that situation, you know. And what but what do you think about what I'm railing on about here? I think it's a good segue into knocking sociology. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I had the great privilege of of uh, having Bob Penny as a friend. And, and Bob is, is one of the unsung heroes of, of the movement to expose Scientology. He was the man who set up the platform uh, on which FactNet was built. He was the, the computer oh, guy. Oh, okay. So the Fight Against Coercive Tactics Network, which was the first uh, database on coercive psychology that ever to be made publicly available. I had the honor of being the president of that Um 501c3 or whatever it is in the US tax exempt <laughs> non yeah. <clears throat> yeah, for for a year back in 1994, um, with the remarkable Lawrence Wallersheim promoting it. Um, but Bob uh, was one of the most highly educated people I've ever met. He was uh, a really remarkable man. And he'd spent nine years in university studying sociology. Wow. And he turned around and he said, he looked at it and he went, I'm going to be a car mechanic. <laughs> and that's what he did. He published Marjorie Wakefield's 
excellent road to Zeno uh, along the way, and just an incredible, lovely guy. And But his critique of sociology, that he was somebody who had been deeply immersed in this on a doctoral programme, and then had one day just gone, this is not relevant. Um, this is not helpful. This is not scientific. So, uh, you know, one one of my heroes, I'm going to use that word, and I have quite a lot of them, a lot of people I have tremendous respect for, is a sociologist. I mean, I, I love Steve Kent's work as well, and I've got to know him a little bit over the years. Remarkable man. Yes. Um, but among the, the people I think everybody should read to get an education is Eli Sagan. Hmm. And he wrote a series of, of studies. The first is um, The Birth of Tyranny, where he he's kind of going... Where is the historical moment where modern nations begin to emerge, kingships begin to emerge? And he wrote about Uganda, which is part of the territory of modern Uganda. He wrote about Hawaii, um, hmm. and he made some comments about the Old Testament along the way, looking at these societies and how kingship had developed and the birth of tyranny. So what he's saying is very much that a human predator comes along, becomes a tribal leader, yes, and the tribe then follow them. Yep. Now he points to two only two societies that still exist in the world that are not tribal, that don't have a boss telling them what to do, and those are the Baaka pygmy um, in the round about the Congo, um, whatever the country they're in is called now, the Democratic. Democratic Republic of the Congo, what have you, and the San, who who um, are called the Bushmen, in a you know of the Kalahari. Kalahari, now, yeah, desert, yeah. These two, and of course they were driven into the Kalahari. I was reading something the other week where somebody was talking about the ancient things, of, you know, how many centuries and what have you. The, the these Bushmen have been doing this, and it's like no, they were pushed in there when the Zulus migrated in the 19th century. This is a lot more recent than this person thought. But they have retained a society where the person who leads in an activity is the person who's most expert at it. And so they don't have this, I'm the boss and you do what I tell you, sort of thing going on. What is noticeable in documentaries about these, the Baaka and the San, they seem really happy. They seem to just get along with each other, you know. Um, so, do you think th this is very hopeful because it says there is another way of doing this? You know? yeah, well, exactly. And I'm wondering because we've had talks about these guys before, and I'm wondering, do you think that? I mean, it's so small. It's such a rare event that it almost feels, you know, like there's this there's this phrase of a black swan. You know, this this idea that's such an outlier, it's an it's an unpredictable event that is an outlier of magnitude, I suppose, a black swan event. Right. But and I and I'm not trying to say these are these are of magnitude. I guess what I'm trying to say is the rarity of it, the, the you know, it's so bizarre to see a society set up without a charismatic leader, without a tyrannical leader, without the guy who has the gift of gab who can get himself into a position when we call that charisma, we call it leadership, we call it lots of things, but it's, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's the guy in charge. And um, do you think that that is, th that the predators are just that good that they finagle their way there and that's the problem that we're facing? Or is it, do you think 
we have a, a human problem with raising up authoritarian predator types and that that's our problem that we're doing that mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily just all we can point the fickle finger of blame at them taking advantage of us poor sods you know is in other words is it a codependent relationship <laughs> what do you think I think it is, you know, it's very hard to kick against the pricks. Um, that if you're born into a society that has a certain set of rules, it's mm. extraordinarily difficult to disagree. Yeah. Um, again, Ira Chaleff's work on courageous followership is pivotal to this idea. And, you know, Ira's come out of the closet. Ira was a, a leading um, Scientologist. He was a very important figure. He set up an organization in Tokyo. Uh, he ran the Manchester organization where I came to know him in the late 1970s, and we became fast friends, and we're still fast friends. He ran St. Hill for a while. He worked directly with Ron Hubbard, and so he saw what tyranny looked like. Yep. And the, the first time I heard about severe reality adjustments was actually overhearing Ira perform one on my wife. And I was a public Scientologist. I'd never, I knew nothing about this screaming at somebody until they collapse, you know, yep. to dominate and humiliate them. And uh, I challenged him on it. And, and, you know, if it isn't written, it isn't true. So I said, where did Hubbard say you should behave this way? And to my amazement, this legendary lion of Scientology put his head in his hands and started crying. And, you know, this was back in ooh, 1982. Um, and he said, it's not written anywhere. And I said, well, why do you do it then? You know, if it isn't written, it isn't true. You've got to have it written down. Ron Hubbard says this. He wrote this, in fact. You know, if it isn't written, it isn't true. He wrote it down for us. So it's a truth. And he said Hubbard did it to us. There Hubbard does go. it all the time. And it yeah. gradually, as we left Scientology, and he was able to tell me just how brutal Hubbard's rages were, just how much he traumatized the people around him. You go, and this guy that brought us Dianetics to relieve all our trauma is personally actually inflicting trauma on people. Right. There's a little bit of an oxymoronic situation here, a little bit of a contradiction. So Ira went on to then go and work with politicians in uh, Washington, D.C., and um, very quickly... He, he initially, I think, went there with the idea that he would give Scientology to these people so they could administer their affairs better. And thankfully, he worked with a, a boss who, who really did know how to sort things out. And within about a year of arriving in Washington, he had no interest whatsoever in the administration technology. He'd found out how to actually help people. He's now a, a traveling fellow of Cambridge University. He's been recognized. He's spoken to the European council. He's spoken to Sandhurst Military Academy, the FBI. He is a renowned man because he's brought us this idea of it is your responsibility. You know, you can't just say, oh, let's groupthink it with, with the boss and, and we'll support the boss no matter what the boss wants. Yeah. This mafia idea of politics that we're still subscribing to, it's your responsibility yeah. to, to get hold of the boss and say that's wrong. That's the wrong way to approach this problem. And to try and create a culture where you don't have that Kennedy effect, you know, where the Bay of Pigs happened because Kennedy was never told 
that it was the most stupid idea imaginable to send 2,000 people to invade a country that had an army of 180,000 with the, the highest popularity ratings for its leader, the evil Fidel Castro, and, you know, where their escape plan was to hack through 80 miles of jungle, which is about a mile a day. It was just... It was the... It was just... Horseshit. It was just a stupid idea. But Kennedy was not told this because of this, well, you know, the charisma of the leader, the magical godlike power of the leader. And I guess we could say, if you look at Joseph Campbell or Machia Eliad's histories of religion, that we have adopted values that we get from Sumeria. Mm -hmm. They went from Sumeria to Babylon to India to Egypt to China. Uh, with a little bit of Cambodian influence, I think, in China. And this idea that, that the leader is a god, the president, the king, you know, you, you have the, uh, the, the king's touch in this country where it was believed that if the king touched somebody who had a palsy, that it would, you know, a shaking disease, it would cure them immediately. Yeah. You have the anointment of our, you know, our current queen was anointed with holy oil. So charism as it is called, which made her charismatic. That's where the word comes from. This idea, you know, as, as Anthony Storr, a psychiatrist, wrote a brilliant book called Feet of Clay, which, which I read soon after leaving Scientology, where he kicks the shit out of Sigmund Freud, you know, which I thoroughly agree with. I think it's a very good pastime. Yep. This man was, you know, Ron Hubbard, nothing compared to Sigmund Freud. He was a lying bastard. And, you know, he, he committed evil. And he created a system that is the most insane view of the human mind and human behavior and has done nothing but harm from my perception. And, mm. and I, you know, I, I, I would apologize immediately to, to my friend Dan Shaw, who is a forensic psychoanalyst, uh, which has some Freudian. I think Dan, I would recommend Dan to anybody because he's a brilliant guy. But the other forms of the Freudian therapy, I, I, I've had two friends who went through a full, you know, five-year course of this stuff. And at the end, with one of them, at the end of five years, his therapist said, you should spend more time with your children. We've been seeing this guy for twice a week, you know, paying a fortune. And in the end, the solution was, you've just, these five years that you could have spent with your kids, you should be spending more time with your children. Um, and the other guy was just crazy, and I'm, I'm not going to get into it, but... It wasn't helpful. It wasn't useful. Uh, Adam Curtis's documentaries, The Century of the Self, give a very good view of Freud, then his daughter Anna and the, the way she screwed people up, then through to Jeremy Freud, who gave us product placement. When he issued the documentaries, uh, Clement Freud, the grandson, hadn't been outed as a sexual abuser. So the whole family are just... Wow. You know, it's dreadful group of people anyway wow. feet of clay I, I didn't know about any of that that's, that's all new to me wow <laughs> yeah um anna, anna freud is interesting she she became the great expert on family therapy and how to bring kids up all based on four kids who were given to her by some rich patrons and she then you know hothoused them and brought them up in the way she thought one of them became an alcoholic one committed suicide I would reckon that's a 50% failure rate, which is not really good enough. I don't know what happened to the other two, but mm. I doubt they had easy lives. So we, we get these authorities, and you have to divide this between the authoritarian, 
and the genuine authority. Somebody who's an expert about some, something, that's useful. I'd rather have a surgeon operate on me than a plumber, you know, but I'd rather have a plumber fix my plumbing than exactly. a surgeon, you know. So expertise, and this gets mixed up. So you have rank authority, people who, you know, they've got a badge or, a, you know, some stripes on their arm, and they can bully you. And sadly, this goes all through our system. So uh, teachers, sometimes they're experts, and their expertise is the most valuable thing in society, I believe. A teacher who can teach is more valuable than anything else in the world. But there are so few of them because the system doesn't really want that kind of people. Um, a doctor who can cure people, well, that'd be good. Uh, a lawyer who can prevent injustice, People just become cynical because they get trapped in the system and they realize that if you are thoroughly genuine, open, transparent, and honest, you'll last 10 minutes in this world. Yeah. And so they join in. They become part of the corrupt system um, and continue it. And yeah. I don't think we need to do this. I, I think that if we taught kids how to recognize predators, and um, we'll put a link to my predator poster, which is you know something you put up on your fridge or. Yep. And you, it was a school teacher asked us to do it. Actually, a US school teacher. Um, that you know, in a single page, there you are. There's a video on my channel called Human Predators, which has the characteristics in. You can see what to look out for. You know, if somebody. If somebody is mean and they lie to you, watch out. It's not complicated. If somebody brags and boasts about how wonderful they are and puts other people down and can't stand to have other people praised, watch out. You know, there are a list of characteristics that belong to such people. If, if they push you to make, take risks and you feel you, you ought to do that, if they humiliate you in front of other people, um, such simple things that have actually been caught up in the system. So, you know, I worked on about 150 court cases relating to Scientology over the years, and some of the judges that I saw were just, this is impossible. How? Why isn't the hair psychopathy checklist being used on people before they can stand for political office, before they can become judges? Because we have a disproportionate amount of psychopaths, sociopaths, malignant narcissists in powerful positions in our society. That's it right there. And I think that's the I think that's the uphill battle that we are pushing back or fighting on uh, against, right? Is that yeah. is it is an uphill battle. The deck is stacked at this point against us because of that simple fact. And so I think that education component you're talking about there is vital. Uh, tempered with the fact that we that it's that it's that we have to think about this um, I think we have to think about learning about this stuff and, and utilizing it the same way we have to think about, or I talk about, you know, critical thinking skills. It's almost a discipline. It's, it, it's not just some facts you're trying to put in somebody else's head. You're trying to get across to them an attitude or a, or a, a, a way of looking at or approaching life itself or your relationships with other people where you... 
I, I would, but the way I imagine it or sort of think about it is, wouldn't it be great if everybody kind of had this awareness or this like filter or something, or you know, something that would be like when you when you are looking at situations or evaluating circumstances with people, you you know, you can see past the words, you can see past the flowery language and the the pretty imagery. Because I'll tell you, some of the most evil people in the world are also have been some of the most beautiful people in the world. I mean, we, we fall for or we give a pass to aesthetics, pleasantry, you know, manners, this kind of stuff. If we could see past that, if we could somehow train ourselves to see actions, not words, right, and deeds or, you know, and, 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 and what is an intent in a way, but intent is hard to read, so... I think I think falling back on behavior and action is what you can see right in front of you and training ourselves to not give a pass as as readily as we are want to do when we are when we have biases in favor of people because they're our team member because they're our family member because they work with us or for us we bias ourselves, we favor, we give them a break, we give them a pass, we say it's really not that bad when it is. <laughs> you know? And as you say, we're susceptible to charm and yeah. we're particularly susceptible to flattery. Yes. You know, that, and you say so you have the, 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 the constant cycle with the abuser, which is that, that they do something horrifying and then they apologize and they're charming. And then they do it again. <laughs> and then they tell you how wonderful and forgiving you are. And, you know, it, it fascinated me as I started to see that abusive relationships, where there's spousal abuse, are just micro-cults. You you've got one person who's dominating another person. And what we're looking for is an even playing field where we all have the right to say something. For me, the most frustrating thing and I, you know this, I, in theory, I retired in June this year. I reached the age of 66, which is the age where you get a state pension in this country, which you can't live on, but heck, it's something. And I, I sort of went, I, I want to paint pictures again because that's what I'm, I'm an artist. I, I, I want to play the drums and sing again because that's what I used to do. You know, back when I was a Scientologist, I still got to do those things. I, I want to publish the two novels add to the two novels or I've already published. I, I want to do these things. I want to have some fun. But this frustration is this could be changed in a in three or four years. That's all it would take with the will. Because if you put this into the school system for just four or three or four years and you teach kids when they're five, you teach them Ira's thing, which is um, Blink, Think, Choice, Voice. There's a little video by that name, excellent little video that he put up for parents. And a five-year-old, you're saying to them, look, if somebody says something that sounds a bit weird, blink, think, make a choice about what you're going to do, and then voice it. Mm. So they're being taught a process of thought that most of us, we don't withdraw. We don't think twice. We don't go away from the predator or the charmer and think about it. Give them that. Give them a situation, uh, Matthew Lipman, in his brilliant work on education, this idea that you sit kids round in a, a circle 
at whatever age, uh, six, uh, Socrates for Six-Year-Olds was the name of the brilliant documentary about it many years ago in the 80s. And you sit them in a circle, and the one I remember is that the, the facilitator, there's not a teacher, says, um, why do we need a brain? Uh, would we, could we survive without a brain? Not there to teach them anything. The first kid goes, I think we need a brain because otherwise we'd fall over. And the next kid goes, either I agree or I disagree, and says, well, I think a brain's a good thing, you know, for whatever reason. And what they found by applying this program, and it's been applied in thousands of places, is people start thinking. Yeah, there you they go. They start feeling that it's okay for them to have an opinion, that their opinion is valuable, and everybody's opinion is valuable. It's got nothing to do with being stupid or intelligent. You know, um, that often it's the uneducated people who are willing to stand up against tyranny because the educated people have been blinkered and put through a system where they're used to behaving this way. So if we put those things in for young kids and we then get teenagers to, to recognise what predators look like and to understand the methods of seduction and recruitment, you know, go and watch Tom Cruise in Magnolia, for example. Yes, How to fake like you are nice and caring. <laughs> He's brilliant in that, but... At no point does he look in the mirror and go, oh, my God, this is Scientology that, exactly. that I'm doing here. Right. So those, these things, I believe that, that the world could be changed in a few years because if you can just shift 1% or 2% of people to add to the 1% or 2% of people who are actually noticing this stuff, you could create a massive change. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I that's think very I, frustrating. Every, you know, everybody go out and do this. I've I've spent thirty eight bloody years. I'm retiring. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the thing. That's why we do these podcasts. Is we're trying to get people out there to pick up the torch. We don't. You know, th this isn't a recruitment channel particularly. But on the other hand, <laughs> you know, we're not selling anything except common sense and critical thinking. But it just and those are free. By the way, uh, there, you know, you, you shouldn't be in, and, and never should be charged for those things. You know, those are just what you sh what you have a right to have as a human being. And uh, and I think that it, it, I think you're right. I think the, the devil's in the details there, because I think we're seeing like with climate change and other major issues, you know, trying to get everybody on the same page these days is is, is uh, it, it's it, to, just to, to say Sisyphus. I mean, it's it's a challenge, you know. Mm. Uh, Sisyphus is the guy who pushed the rock up the hill every day. And then at the end of the day, you know, it was back down at the bottom of the hill. Yeah. And that's kind of how it feels sometimes in doing this work, to be honest. But it feels I, like it every day because the bloody <laughs> rocks at the bottom of the hill again. Exactly. <laughs> and then somebody like Greta Thunberg comes forward. Yeah. You know, at age 15, I think, when she broke into onto the world stage and lambastes the world's wise leaders saying it's just blah 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 you know? yep and she's and not it, wrong it, and she's, she's not, not wrong. wrong she's not no, and i i i want her to be world president because i mean the uh, i am greater the uh, documentary about her is really remarkable mm. tract because you 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 find that when she was five or six years old she stopped eating because her asperger's is such that she can see just how incredibly stupid the adult world is. 
that all of this pretense, all of these arrogant people who spend their time viciously attacking you and me, how dare they? Um, or, you know, the, the complete um, lack of comprehension. I, I mean, for me, talking with people about global warming, I, I first read about the greenhouse effect in 1971. I was 16 years old. It's been around since the 50s. And I was very interested in it because it was being laughed at because we all knew that we were entering a new ice age. Hmm. We knew that. It was scientifically a fact we were going to be in a new ice age in the next 30 or 40 years. And so I watched the science, and it was around about the mid-'80s when they started taking core samples of the ice, which Al Gore got so badly wrong in his... Um, his documentary about what that meant, but never mind, Al, good good try. But we see that carbon dioxide levels have changed and that other gases, nitrogen uh, gases, methane, what have you, will influence the planet and what happens on it. And that's all very, very interesting. But ultimately, it pushes to some... There's a, an excellent um, BBC drama called uh, The Trick, which is about Professor Philip Jones at the Climate Research uh, Unit at the uh, East Anglia University. And this event happened about 2009 where his, his emails were hacked and he talked about this trick in, a, in what's called the hockey stick graph where it shows that suddenly there's this atmospheric change taking place. And it he... In the documentary, there's a point where he's, I mean, his life is devastated by the assault upon him by the climate change deniers. And it's worth saying that the chief among those deniers actually went back through his data at uh, it's a Berkeley Institute and decided he was right, that when he'd got all of the data in front of him, he went, oh, my God, he's right. The trick was that they'd found out that, that the information you get from tree rings actually starts going wrong somewhere, I think, in the 1960s, possibly because of the amount of pollution that we've poured into the atmosphere. And so they stop using tree rings to take data from because they know they're not accurate at that point and because you don't need them anymore because we've got thousands of places measuring the atmosphere around the world. So, in fact, that misrepresentation made by climate change deniers and, heck, made by PR agencies representing the oil companies, mm -hmm. same PR agencies that represented the tobacco industry, who managed to sell a conspiracy theory that, yeah, you see, this is all bit... And we've come to the point where I'm pretty convinced that most of our major conspiracy theories are the work of PR agencies Russian intelligence yep. and American intelligence agencies. Yep. And so we get into this bizarre place where the public mind is being manipulated. For example, UFOs. That's a favourite of mine. Um, just said we've both been on Sean Atwood's show. He, he did a thing with David Icke. And uh, I thought, I'll oh, watch that because David Icke's always a good laugh. And I'm, I'm going, this is not David Icke. He's actually he's speaking sensibly. The, you know, you didn't get all the detail, but here's the detail. At the end of World War II, the Russians and the Americans both found two testing sites for circular jet vehicles. Sound familiar? 
Ah. The Russians actually got one of them and took it back to Russia. It's about 40 meters across, you know, 45 wow, yards, huge thing. It could fly at supersonic speeds because it had vertical takeoff jets, like the Hawker Harrier plane, Yep, which they used in Messerschmitt 262. The Americans, the factory had been destroyed, so they didn't get any craft, but they got blueprints. Three engineers who worked on these projects have testified. So both America and Russia got flying saucers. And here's a perversity. If you look at the media in the West and the media in Russia, the descriptions of aliens are different. Are they? They're consistent West to West and East to East, but they're different East to West. Possibly because the agency that put out these descriptions originally and made up the Roswell incident and all of this, this was deliberate propaganda by agencies who were testing these craft. Interesting. David Icke gets that far with it and then says, but there are aliens involved. Right. <laughs> no, no. Well, you know, I, I just to just to contribute more craziness to this conversation, just because I, I heard this and I'm going to say, I think I heard it from a guest on Joe Rogan and the guest's name eludes me, but it wasn't a nutter. It wasn't an Alex Jones type. It was somebody who actually expected to be taken seriously on this and and had some credentials to speak on it. Um, I think it was a CIA guy, if I remember right. It's Mike mm. something, I think his name was. And he talked about the possibility, at least. I, I don't think he said it was a dead certainty, but he talked about the possibility that Roswell was a Russian prank. Was it was basically Stalin trolling the United States, right? Like, look what I can get away with. I'm gonna crash this thing over in the desert. You guys are are gonna are gonna take this thing up and run with this. And it ends up becoming this weird alien story when it was really Stalin just kind of screwing around with our strategic defense and showing that he could. Right? Yeah, I mean we we know that um the deputy prime minister and chief, former deputy prime minister and chief advisor to Putin, uh, published a paper on um, the Discordian approach to propaganda. It, it, it's a matter of record that the Russian intelligence agencies have a unit that deals with propaganda. So the idea is you divide and conquer. Yep. I don't think that QAnon was actually devised as a Russian plot, but I'm pretty sure they jumped in as soon as they saw it going. Yep. We know from Peter Pomerantsev's books, excellent books, that they, they will fund extremist groups in Russia. They're, the more ridiculous your idea, the more money they'll give you yep. because they want the public to be saturated with confusion. And that's... Russian Discordianism, and of course, in but it's worth saying this, in the US you had the Discordians themselves. And uh, these two guys, these two hippies who sit down and they decide they don't really believe in anything except for chaos, that mm. the idea of order is, is just wrong. There is no order in the universe. And they set up the Discordian movement. In the 60s, they start writing letters. They, they go, what's the most ridiculous idea we can put into society? And they find out that the John Birch Society, speaking of intellectual highbrows, have been 
uh, they've started believing in this Illuminati idea. Yeah. The Bavarian Illuminati, which lasted for about 10 years and was trying to spread enlightenment ideas in Bavaria. Adam Weishaupt and all this. And so these two guys um, sit down, Thornley and Hill, I think they were called. They sit down and they start writing letters to Playboy about the Illuminati. And it just so happens that Shea and Wilson, two letters editors at Playboy, go, oh, wow, what a brilliant idea. And they write the Illuminatus trilogy, <laughs> in which they pull everything they can. I read them because Scientologists used to read them in the late 70s. And they, they were mind-bending. Mm. But they weren't based upon actual research. They were, and you've got, Thornley and Hill go, yes, yes, we managed to penetrate society with the most ridiculous idea we could find. Then you go to QAnon, and sure enough, they believe in the Illuminati. Of course they do. Of course they do. And so who is making the conspiracy theories up? Why are they being pushed out there? It's a way of attacking. It's a psyop. It's a psychological yeah. operation. Against a whole pub population, you know. And so, are you telling me that there's a conspiracy behind the conspiracy theories? I believe there is. I, I've spent the last year studying this, uh, reading about neo-Nazi groups and about Discordianism. Uh, I'm sort of thinking about writing a book. I, I'm not sure I want to because I've retired. You know. <laughs> and um, it got pretty intense. The the research I was doing because. There was so much I didn't know about and that has been tracked. And you know, there's a historical record. One of the things I found, and I'm not, not going to get into any detail because I need some scoops in, in life, but I found out that there are whole organizations uh, that have committed astonishing crimes, hundreds and hundreds of terrorist offenses whose names were historically known a hundred years ago, and who are no longer talked about at all. Right. If you look to Wikipedia, you won't find any reference to the biggest terrorist organization in the Americas. No reference at all to their acts. Yet they committed over 2,000 terrorist acts. It, it's as if there's a massaging of history that has gone on. Now, there's a conspiracy theory. There it is. There it is. But, um, people are going to have to send me money before I'm going to tell them what it is. It's about time I made some money after 30 uh, Yeah, years, right? It? Exactly. It's it, about, time, about time for that. Well, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? I will say this. I will say this. Because um, we've been talking about critical thinking as well here. And I will say that. Um, I'm going to bring back up for those of you out there who are listening right now thinking, John's gone off the deep end. Uh, be, beware your sacred cows. Hmm? Beware. Beware of them. Be aware of them. That's what beware means, is hmm. be aware. It doesn't mean that, they're, that you're wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're right. It means hmm. be aware of the fact that you have biases right so if you listen to you know the stuff john's talking about or i'm talking about whatever and you go well that doesn't you know that's bullshit well are you sure are you sure by the book by the book find <laughs> it i haven't written it yet <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly but, i mean, I mean the one piece of information that you know, i wanted to understand what aryan race theory was because all of my life I've been told about the Nazis and Aryan race theory, this idea that, that white people are somehow superior to 
anybody else, Northern European white people particularly. That's right. Though Hitler, of course, did include the Japanese and the Italians among the, the Aryans for some reason, and probably the Spanish. But, I, it was, you know, I don't actually know where this idea came from. And um, so I've, I've read three academic texts on this written by university professors who've, who've dug into the original documents, and I was horrified. Um, so, I mean, you have uh, the first great book on this was um, The Occult Roots of Nazism, Oh. by um, Professor Nicholas Goodrick Clark, and everything is documented. Yep. And the idea of Aryan race theory, which is so fervently believed by the Ku Klux Klan and so many other, you know, the Aryan Brotherhood and so many other ridiculous little tribal groups who are fundamentally terrorists, um, this idea comes from Madame Blavatsky. Ah, of course it does. Mm. Madame Blavatsky. God, her name comes up again. She is one of the founders of, you know, modern wacky thinking, no doubt. I mean, Scientology and many other groups are influenced by her and by Mary Baker Eddy and Ralph Waldo Trine. Um, There are a bunch of these people who are very influential, but Blavatsky founds the Theosophical Society. She's thrown out of India as a fraud. Um, Her work is tested by the um, London Psychical Research Society and found to be completely bogus in her own lifetime in the 19th century. And she claims that she's getting material from uh, Tibetan, ascended Tibetan masters. Tibetans were very popular because nobody could get into Tibet at this time. (laughs) And they're um, 800 years old, like Yoda, and, and nine foot tall, unlike Yoda. And in English speak, they can properly, and which is strange because they're Tibetans. And she gives us a secret doctrine. And in the secret doctrine of Madame Blavatsky, it says that the lost uh, continents of Atlantis and Lemuria are the origin of this story, that the Atlanteans were the Aryan people and that they made the dreadful mistake of, here we go again, miscegenating with the Lemurians. And they lost their, get this, electron powers. Now, it was one of the first Aryan race theorists, the Ariosophists, who came up with this idea, Guido von Lust, that they they had electron powers. The electron had just been discovered by Max Planck or somebody, so they had electron powers. Just, just, like, like, just like everybody has quantum powers now. Yeah, exactly, yeah. quantum powers. It's That's just right. exactly the same thing but on a micro scale, much smaller than the electron. Um, actually, it's the same thing, isn't it? Quanta electrons, let's face it. I mean, no when it comes to how Deepak Chopra talks about it. Oh, God. You know, same, same, same. That man is. Yeah. So then we, we roll on and we, we say, what happens when you start believing this, this racial purity? And genetically, we know that this is complete nonsense. Genetically, now you can test DNA, and there are no pure people. Correct. Um, what's more, anybody who comes from Eastern Europe or has ancestors from you know, Russia or a Slav country would, of course, have been considered non-Aryan by Hitler, and indeed million, 28 million perhaps of them were murdered, killed by Hitler because they were slaves, Slav, slave, same thing as far as it was concerned. I believe the two words may actually be cognate. But this develops under Himmler 
founder of the SS, head of the SS, head of all the death camps and the labor camps, head of the Gestapo and minister of the interior. So one of the most powerful people. He founds the Arnenerd Ministry, which has 50 departments and uses all of the academics of Germany, except for the Jewish ones, of course, you know, now eating potato peelings and wearing dirty pajamas um, because of the great ethical power of the Aryan nation. And he then develops this thing called the Lebensborn. Um, one of the women in ABBA, the dark-haired one, was a Lebensborn child. And this is where the best specimens of SS men will get to shag blonde women and bring forth these babies. There's film of all this stuff. What is not in the public record, strongly enough, is, is the purpose of the Lebensborn. They were bringing back racial purity with the acceptance that they were not racially pure, that the Germans were not racially pure. They had to be bred back to become racially pure, and then they would have electron powers. So the pursuit of supernatural powers through Ron Hubbard's operating Thetan le levels is the same as Himmler's idea that the Aryan people will be reborn and they'll have supernatural powers. It hasn't happened. And yet there are these really dangerous groups all over the world who none of them understand the simplistic fairy tale nonsense invented by Madame Blavatsky, which has led them to their ridiculous and anti-human beliefs. Correct. So Correct. shame on them. Well, isn't it? I mean, it's it's like one of those things where once you learn it, and and this has happened over and over to me, of course, as well. And I think anybody who studies history and dives into some, you know, little pool of history or some little theme along historical lines and realizes the evolution of thought and the evolution of ideas and and how ideas are propagated from one culture to another and the the twists and turns that they take and the ready acceptance of absolutely batshit crazy ideas by people who have no concept of where they actually came from is is commonplace this is this is the this is the course yeah. of history and mm -hmm. and we hear about the gains we hear about the 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 sort of stable evolutionary things that happen as ideas grow and propagate, et cetera. But we don't tend to think too much about what you just went on a rail about, which is when bad ideas propagate or crazy kind of things propagate, or um, we get these like threads of things that were really, really big. This is the, this is the part that's crazy. And I'm glad you brought it up because we don't talk about it enough. Um, and I, I wonder if I need like, you know, historians or something sometimes because there are these there are fads there are movements there are mm -hmm. entire cultural trends huge things that get completely forgotten about 10 20 30 100 years after the fact that had massive influence on the mm -hmm. thinking of the time and they become what i would consider a hidden variable in the in the analysis that you're going to do you look back at the 20s and you go stock market crash you know big huge event affected everything and you go yeah that's very true but did you know that there were also three other things that went down that had just as big of an effect that nobody talks about anymore and that's why you don't know anything about it and people go what and there's a financial collapse about every 30 years historically going right back to the collapse of say, uh, John Law's um, 
selling of the Mississippi scheme to the French monarchy. So the French monarchy came to base their whole currency on a bubble that didn't exist. Wow. And the currency collapsed and the French Revolution happened. And you go, the French Revolution happened because of an economic collapse? I didn't know that. Um, as Voltaire said, as little time before the French Revolution, people who believe absurdities will commit atrocities. And, yeah, I mean, if you look, you know, two other things that happened in the 20s in the US, there's the, the Tulsa um, uh -huh. destruction of a wealthy black community by the first aerial bombing of civilians in the United States, and there are the killings of the Flower Moon, uh, the first major FBI case where tens of you, you have basically a, a Native American people who happen to have been put on a land that is the most oil-rich land in America. And because they are under American law, they are considered to be children. They have to have guardians because they're not, they're not capable of being adults. So they have white guardians, and these people start killing them off. Um, there's a great book called The Killers of Flower Moon, which, which investigates this. You have all of these dynamics that are pulling around in society. Um, there's a great book called American Nations, which points out there are 11 separate nations in the U.S., and that one of them in the Deep South comes from the Scots borders. And these are thug cultures. These are hooligan cultures because the, the Northern English and the Southern Scottish were at war with each other. So you have a, a culture of machismo where people are bossing and bullying and you looking at me. And that culture is then passed down to the slaves. And it then goes into black culture and it becomes certainly not the dominant and final aspect of black culture, thankfully, but it's an imposed white culture. That right. horrific treatment is passed into another culture, and the same, these values are passed into that culture. You know, and thankfully, um, you know, majority of people are overcoming them, but you then get the, the ghettoization that, that the whole universal education system was adopted in the 1880s in the U.S., to homogenize the population. Well, where in the world do you get Italian-Americans, African-Americans, Latino? You have the most divided society in the world. In other places, I mean, in where I live, we have managed, we are gradually managing to integrate people, you know, started with the Huguenots, it probably started with the bloody Normans in 1066, but we are a country that has taken invade, you know, stopped, being invaded. We're the only state, one of the only stable countries. If we have a history that goes back to 1066, that's the last time we were taken over. The US, of course, goes back to the revolution, 1770s. Yeah. But before that, it, it's fragmented and it never unifies. You've got these distinct cultures. So you move to different places in the US. You've got different idiom, you've got different laws, you've got, you know, different ethnology That's right. and to to bring reason to that to bring critical thinking to that and to say why don't we create a culture that's helpful to humanity why don't we create a culture that's friendly you know why are we still fighting wars you know talk about cults being stupid 
you know, exactly. how many hundreds of thousands of people are involved, how many millions of people are involved in the military? I mean, the North Koreans have something like 2 million people in the military. Uh, Russia, China, all of this stuff going on. Why are we wasting all of this stuff when we've got to grow up and accept that we are one big family, big family that, you know, needs to work out how to, to work together and do something and make our goal um, creating a better world exactly. um, for ourselves and for most of the species, though not the mosquito. <laughs> yeah, we seem to have a little selfish problem when it comes to speciation. I... Um, mm. Oh, I want to I want to mention one other point just on the hidden variable point because you just did a great job there just kind of breaking down this very expansive uh, example of that and I thought of another one that is on the line of cults that is again one of these non-obvious points of history that I had to have Stephen Kent actually pointed out as a as an aside in a paper he wrote and I looked at it and I went wait a second what and then I went and looked it up and I was like god damn he's right Okay, check this out. Mid-1960s, United States. Why did we have a sudden cult boom in the 60s and 70s? Because of a, ma because of a major change in U.S. immigration policy. Mm. U.S. immigration policy opened the doors to India and, mm. to the, and to Southeast Asia, and more people were able to come into the country more easily from those regions. They had been restricted before that because, you know, war, that sort of thing. And the immigration policies took a while to catch up. And this is as I understand it, there might be more data on this, but that but the change being made there, opened the door to a bunch of gurus and and those types coming over here. Now, I'm not saying everybody that immigration is a bad thing or traveling the world's a bad thing or migrating is a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that a change that none of us thought about, or looked into it was an unintended consequence of that law that a bunch of guru types and, you know, that, that, the, that the flourishing, the 1960s and 70s flourishing of new age Eastern mysticism cults came from, it was facilitated, I should say, by that law change. That was a big deal. It wasn't a small deal, but it's a hidden influence or it's a thing you don't think about one area affecting another area kind of thing in a very significant way. And so I I just thought I'd throw that out as another yeah, example. On the same, very much the same topic, the, the world was changed. That our, our drug laws come from the Harrison Act in the US, 1914, 1915. And the US has imposed those laws on the rest of the world. So we have this comedy at the moment that 33 states have decriminalized cannabis, 11 states have legalized it, but only two other places in the world, uh, Uruguay and Canada, has this taken place. Now, it was the US. The Dutch have said, you know, they've had a decriminalized uh, decriminalization of cannabis since 1977. But the, I think it was the mayor of Amsterdam, he said, we would legalize this drug, only America would, would there'd be sanctions against us if we did this. And the federal position is still that. But those laws, all of the drug laws, have a, an origin in the 1880s with the act that excluded Chinese immigrants. That starts it. because, And the, you know, I'm sure it's not being taught in US schools, but the move against the celestials, as the Chinese were called at that time, even by uh, socialist groups, 
you know, there were there were violent attacks on the Chinese. Yeah. They'd been imported to build the railways, and then he wanted to get rid of them. And how did you get rid of them? Well, firstly, you stopped any immigration. It was the first restriction on immigration in the US, I believe. Um, yeah, because at this time in California, there were as many Chinese as there were everybody else, because so many of them had come in. They were being treated as slave labor, pretty much. Thousands of them were killed during the building of the Pacific Railroad. Um, Health and safety issues were not uppermost in the minds of people like Andrew Carnegie, the great philanthropist. So they were actually banned from immigration, but there were so many of them. How did you get them to go home? That's why the first law against opium was brought in. And it's against raw opium, which is the weakest form, not against heroin or morphine, codeine, the stronger forms, but against smoking opium, because that's what the Chinese used. And so then some bright spark realizes you can get trading concessions in China, you know, which have been very successful for the British and the French and the Dutch. You can make lots of money. If you go to the Chinese government and say, we agree with your war on opium. And so the US produced this thing, which could exclude the Chinese so they wouldn't take over, and create a treaty with China so that you could make a tremendous profit. Within a dozen years, China collapses. 1912, the emperor is is gone, and you start then 35 years of civil war and Japanese occupation in Manchukuo in the middle of that. Just this incredible, the law of unintended consequences that once you let one of these Machiavellian schemes loose. It will have, which leads us then to Nixon's war on drugs. That's right, round um, two of this whole we, thing. We, yeah, and and the hundreds of billions that have been spent on this project of stopping people from taking drugs that, you know, some of them are harmful, but they're not as harmful as tobacco and they're not as harmful as alcohol. Right. But they don't have the lobbies to protect them. And we now, of course, we've moved into a new phase, which is that the pharmaceutical companies are actually producing the fentanyl, carfentanyl, oxycodone, Vicodin, all of these things. And so the war on drugs has become very confusing indeed. Yes. As to its objectives. And you have the highest prison uh, per capita prison population in the land of the the free and home of the brave that's right yeah a lot anywhere in the world even russia and china have a lower and north korea have lower per capita prison populations what's more they don't have a majority of latino and black then you get the production of the gangs within the prisons so a group will form within the prison and they're deported back to ecuador or mexico or ever and that sets up a base for gangs to be run through the US to run the drug trade. And you kind of go, well, look, if you if you regulated drugs in the way we regulate alcohol, look at the Volstead Act and Prohibition, if you regulated drugs, these gangs would disappear. They'd have to find some other way to do this. Correct. Yeah, we stand on the verge of that Mexico may very well make that step. Colombia may make that step. Um, But it's a matter of Oh, you know, as Keith Richard, uh, Richards of the Rolling Stones said, you know, he'd never had any trouble with drugs, but he had an awful lot of trouble with the police. Yes. 
<laughs> and well, yet he still managed to write 50 of the greatest songs ever written, you know. So. Exactly. And the guy's never going to die. He'll outlive me. I, uh, and it's 40 years ago since he stopped taking heroin as well, which almost nobody seems to be willing to accept. But they, they said it was said of Keith Richards that if you fed him nails, he'd piss rust. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's that guy's constitution is enviable. I will certainly say that. Um, I uh, what was I going to say? I was going to say that, uh, you know, the things that we've been sitting here talking about for the last 20 minutes are the ebb and flow of, uh, of history and of information and, you know, the, the way things go from one generation to the next to the next and the misconceptions and nonsense. I just, I, I, I find the whole picture fascinating because it is such a juxtaposition to the simplistic view of the conspiracy theorists. Yes. And that's why I enjoy talking about this with you in such mm. detail is because you bring these facts and and people refute some of them in the comments. And that's fine. You know, it's, it's not a problem that we're not giving all the data. What I'm trying to do here and what I appreciate John for so much as a guest is bringing this wealth of information to show that there is a wealth of information to mm. consider when you think about these big problems and it's not just you know and and the and the problem with us as a species i think in the way we deal with this stuff is we crave simple solutions to incredibly complex problems and by doing that we kind of continue to create complex problems that defy solution because we keep thinking that we're going to find some simple ass solution that just doesn't it's not real it doesn't the world doesn't work that way you know, and I, I just like pointing that out from time to time. So because this is really at the end of the day, my counter argument to all the conspiracy crap is I just go, well, the specifics of the conspiracy crap are interesting. And maybe fact one and fact five and fact 500 might have some grains of truth to it. But but the problem is the framework you've created. This concept is so simplistic. 12 people run the world. Are you kidding me right now? You know, like this kind of crap. You just go, are you like, how do you think this way? Did you just graduate kindergarten? Like you do realize the world's a little more complicated than that. Right. And my, anyway, my voice gets high. I start getting a little upset about this stuff because it's just so it's like arguing with children. That's what it feels like, you know, in, in, yeah, in addressing you have this to, stuff. You know, uh, Andy Nolch. Yeah. Everybody go, exactly. go and look at my, my debunking of Andy Nolch after he debunked me. Right. But, and I tried to, to treat all of the ideas he put. We went through everything he'd said. It took him an hour and 20 minutes. Um, John Haydack doesn't believe in psychic powers. I'm doing the Australian accent because two Australians <laughs> criticised me for not doing it. In the... <laughs> they can't win. Um, but he just seemed, you know, it just seemed, somebody compared him to Andy Kaufman and um, the great comedian Andy Kaufman, the great stand-up, who came over as, I'm kind of stupid, you know, and I think about things in this way. And, you know, it's like, no, Andy really is this way. What you're seeing is not a comedy show. Right. This is what he believes. And, it, I mean, he kept sending me, you know, um, videos. It's, it's like uh, he'd said that um, people were being forced to have COVID 
vaccinations. And so I said, oh, who's being forced to have COVID-19 vaccinations? And the answer was a video in which a guy stood up at a, a board of education meeting somewhere in the US and said um, that, you know, there was evidence that within three to five years, everybody who'd taken the vaccine would be sterile or dead. And I kind of went, that doesn't really answer my question, does it? Where is it? That, what country has forced people to have them? And um, But here we are. It's like we bounced off. Yep. Um, as, as Andy says, you share him a hat and he thinks it's an orange, um, which is obviously a reworking of Elrond Hubbard on the uh, suppressive person and the cat and the what have you, but the rug. Um, but this, this incredible kind of bouncing around so I looked at this this thing and, and I said, well, this guy says he's got a PhD from Oxford, the guy in, in the thing. I went, but Oxford doesn't issue PhDs. They don't have professors, they have dons. You know, they've got a different name for everything. They don't do medical degrees, they, they do anatomy, you know. So, and then you look a bit more closely and it's Oxford, Ohio. Ah! <laughs> and then you go, oh, so he's, he's talking about... <laughs> He's talking about vaccination. He, what's his PhD in? It's in education. Right. Oh, so he's not medical. Then you find that a friend of mine in Australia, in fact, went and dug into this. She had, does have a degree in medicine. And, and she found that he was referring to a guy, the, the guy in, who stood up at the Board of Education meeting saying this, who was really the guy who'd worked out that you could use um, mRNA. Um, to deliver vaccines, mm -hmm. so which a couple of the um, um, vaccines are based on. Mm -hmm. And he really was the guy that did this, but he published a paper where it said this stuff about how dangerous it was, which had actually been withdrawn because it found that his references were not accurate. Mm -hmm. It was also found that the pharmaceutical company he'd worked for had sacked him, and he was now working in a chemist shop. And... You kind of go, oh come on, Andy, please, you know, you know, and the confirmation bias is so overwhelming yeah. that any disagreement is Ron Hubbard had six bodies, you know, exactly had nine bodies, you know, exactly, and and this and once you go there, once you once you start rationalizing things with just completely unrealistic, unverifiable, basically unfalsifiable claims. Yeah. You're lost. You're gone. We, we, we're not yeah. having a rational fact-based conversation anymore. We're having a conversation about faith or belief. And that's fine. We can have a conversation about that. But you have to recognize that the nature of the entire argument changes when you enter that realm. And people apply. This is the problem with the religion versus, versus science conversations is these are completely different frameworks of understanding reality. And it's taken me far too long to realize that. That that, yeah, that, that different you are... magisteria, as Stephen Jay Gould said when, when he was arguing against Richard Dawkins, and he said, you know, the magisteria of scientific evidence and the magisteria of faith ne'er the twain shall meet. Robert Piercig in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance back in the 70s pointed out there's quality and there's quantity. And it's like, whoa. You know, and he said, you go to Plato for quality and you go to Aristotle for quantity. Science measures quantities. Faith measures qualities. And you can't overlap them. You can't find the degree of um, divinity 
by measuring it or what have you, and we come to our own perception of what's happening. You and I have a fairly materialistic, reductionist view of the world, um, but we are also probably more agnostic than atheist yeah. in that we don't really want to, to, to say, this is the way it is, and if you don't believe me, I'm going to hit you. You know, it's, it Don't feel that way about anything. You know, I'd much rather have a discussion than with most people I can, you know? Yes. Um, and the idea is not to, you know, overwhelm somebody with information or convince them that they're wrong. It, it's to have a discussion where we both come away with more information than we started with, with, with a deeper and better understanding than we started with. And most of my conversations with people are that way around. Perhaps because I I don't regard people as stupid ever. Um, I've met people who were intellectually challenged, who were uneducated, and I have learned from them. Yep. You know, as I had a, a dear friend, Henry uh, Bonchkowski, a Pol wonderful Polish artist, and he once said to me. Um, that the wisest guy he'd ever met was an illiterate shepherd. And that thought stuck with me. It's like, yeah, we are often educated into folly. Yep. You know, we right. come to believe things which don't prove to be true. I mean, I, I look at it that, that people joke about phlogiston, this idea of this stuff that's left over after you burn things, and then Lavoisier comes along and shows there's oxygen. And, and so phlogiston's a stupid idea. And I look at dark matter and dark energy and super strings <laughs> and the multiverse, and I go, yeah, wait for your time, you know? That's right. Uh, rarely do we find people who willingly engage in hard, solid thinking there is an almost universal quest for easy answers and half-baked solutions. Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. Well, I consider myself humbled for having followed in the same thought process <laughs> before you read that quote. So thank you. I, yeah. And speaking of humility, I wanted to bring up another point, another quote on this along the exact same line that I thought might be a fitting conclusion to our to where we've gone with this podcast. Let's today. face it, we've got to get to the end of this thing somehow. Well, well, basically, we just talk until we get done and then, until we feel done and then we move on. Right. It's always uh, a couple of hours, isn't it? Somehow. Yeah, you know. it always works out that way. And I always uh, have the most fun with these conversations. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um. So David Bowie, hmm. I will never forget this story. It always hit me hard. Um, here is how he describes it. Uh, he said, it's easy to get caught up in the hype. It changes you. So I was on the set of the music video, Ashes to Ashes. Do you know the one? So we're on the beach shooting this scene with a giant bulldozer. The camera was on a very long lens. In this video, I'm dressed from head to toe in a clown suit. Why? Why not? I hear playback and the music starts. So off I go. I start singing and walking. But as soon as I do this, as soon as I do, this old geezer with, a, with an old dog walk right between me and the camera. Yeah. And well, knowing this is going to take a while, I walk past the old guy and sat next to camera in my full costume waiting for him to pass. As he's walking by camera, the director said, excuse me, mister, do you know who this is? 
The old guy looks at me from bottom to top and looks back at the director and said, of course I do. It's some cunt in a clown suit. (laughs) And David Bowie says, that was a huge moment for me. Mm. It put me back in my place and made me realize, yes, I'm just a cunt in a clown suit. I think about that old guy all the time. Yeah, we know Major Tom's a junkie. Um, Bowie said that, you know, he had a rotten childhood and he needed appreciation and adulation from others. And when you look at the desperate attempts that he made over the years, being a folk singer, um, doing all sorts of things, then he, he releases a space oddity it's a massive hit and he can't follow it up. And he says, Major Tom is me. And he's talking basically about having, with that story as well, having graduated from a self-inflicted narcissism into becoming, um, you know, human. Yeah. And, and, and you know, one of the great artists of his period. Yeah. Uh, without doubt, one of the most influential and profound artists of the period. Um, there's an incredible disc which most Bowie fans don't listen to called Outside, which is him and Brian Eno producing a concept piece. And it, it has some of the, it, it's not easy listening, <laughs> it, but it has, you know, some quite nasty things happening in it. But it's a very deep sort of science fiction story that, that they tell between them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he was a man of, of tremendous depth and originality. And I know Tony Ortega misses him very badly indeed. I did, I knew Woody Woodmansey. Um, and he, he he came around and borrowed my drum kit a couple of times when I was living in East Grinstead. And, and he, he had some horrible stories to tell about the younger David Bowie and the spiders from Mars experience. You know, like how he, he went up on stage and said, right, uh, we're not doing this anymore. And he hadn't told the band that they were finished. That was it. I also I met Mike Garson when he played at St. Hill. What an incredible musician. What a great virtuoso. But um, didn't meet Bowie himself, which uh, who knows. But as he was just a cunt in a clown suit, I probably didn't miss anything, really. Yeah, I guess not. Apparently not. <laughs> Henry Rollins it, has, it, a, has a wonderful David Bowie story as well. That's, that's, that's fun to listen to if you want to Google that. Hmm. Um grand yeah exactly well i like throwing we've used both of the c words now that's right (laughs) well i like i like throwing those things out just because i like to stay humble and i like to encourage uh other people to do so because i think it's a a key um foundational principle of critical thinking is to is to remember that humility you You can't think without being willing to be wrong Exactly. Yeah, you, you just, you know, and I've, I've said this, you know, I have lots of little catchphrases and cliches, but, but one of them is we use our intelligence to buttress our stupidity. Yeah. So in fact, highly intelligent people are the most stupid of all because they have that capacity to um, rationalize, intellectualize, justify some absolutely crazy ideas. So we have to be yeah, I've I, I said this before as well, that I enjoy cognitive dissonance. When somebody, you know, I'm fairly good at debate and I have been since I was a teenager. Um, and I used to enjoy, I think as a teenager, showing somebody they were wrong. And I gradually, that just became irksome. I, I wanted to to not 
you know, so I learned to talk, if somebody disagreed with me, to take them away from the audience, talk to them individually. Yeah. Um, it's um, praise in public, reprimand in private, hip rip in English. English British school teachers are taught this now, which is is probably true. Um, but that we have to... In in discussion, we have to have this, you know, for me now, when somebody challenges me and says they think I'm wrong, if they can demonstrate I am wrong, and sometimes they do, um, then that's a victory for me. And it's a victory over my stupidity. Um, and it, it is, it took a long time to be able to do that. And I've got a, a friend up the road who's, who's an architect who's now in his upper 80s. And one of the things that I came here 27 years ago, and one of the things that really impressed me about this guy is he's just, he has humility. He doesn't, he doesn't really care what people think about him. He's, he's perfectly capable to admit that he, he made some stupid decisions in his life and gone wrong. And I'm perfectly willing to admit that at the age of 28, standing up against Scientology was an incredibly stupid thing to do, you know, and it's benefited me nothing other than you know, the humility of realising what an, an utterly stupid thing it was, that, that it, it would have been, my life would have been so much easier if I'd just walked away. But here I am, 66, and I'm a really happy person living a, a really, I don't look, I don't really actually have any regrets, except for the Black Rogers drum kit, but that's another story, and I really should have accepted that. But I, I don't, I don't feel guilty about the way I've lived, um, and I do feel if you do, A, not follow your bliss, and not do, do what's meaningful to you, you will suffer and be unhappy, and B, if you allow injustice, again, Martin Luther King, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere, yeah. that that if you let that happen, you won't actually reap the benefits of the the, the gladness that, that I experience now on a daily basis, now that I've retired. <laughs> yes, we all get a chuckle at that, John. Mm. <laughs> well, in 2015, it was Tony Ortega saying, yeah, John's retired. Yeah, really. yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, we're going to wrap up now just because it's a good place to wrap up. And I think we've made some some stellar and important points here as usual, which is always what we're really just trying to do. And maybe give a few examples and, and analogies or whatever as to what the hell we're trying to talk about here. But uh, thanks, everyone, for coming around and listening to us, Gab. And this will post, of course, on my channel and on John's. So, um, so uh, both of our audiences will be able to fully enjoy this. And I hope both of our audiences will share this around the Internet and let other people know what both of us are doing, uh, both together and independently, because this is important work. And I really do feel very strongly that if there is anything to be, you know, sort of propagated from this conversation, it is to please check out John's book. Because, um, yes, thank you. you know, there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot in there and it's mm. worth looking at. And so I want to end that by, by plugging that because, um, John, where can they get it? Um, it's uh, available through any bookseller, actually, um, and on Amazon, of course, <laughs> the evil Amazon. Um, it's available as a Kindle. It's available as an Audible. 
Uh, so you can listen to me droning there on you for go. About 17 hours or something <laughs> in my ASMR voice. Um, and uh, I'd like to say, you know, talk to us. Uh, if you come onto my channel and put comments on my channel, I do try to answer them um, and have some sort of conversation. If you have anything to correct, I really want to hear about that. If I've said something that's factually wrong, I want to be corrected. Um, I know that's wrong. But it's the way I feel about it. I, you know, I don't feel insecure in my information. I had somebody who, who on Sean Atwood's channel who I, I talked about cacocracy, the rule of the worst, which, and I'm delighted with this word because it can be spelt with two Ks or two C, well, three Cs, in fact, if you cacocracy. And this person came on and said, no, it, it's cacistocracy. And um, so I was able to go and look it up, and surely in the Oxford Dictionary, uh, that I can't find a, a mention of cacocracy, but it is in Wiktionary. It is in the Urban Dictionary. And so it was nice to somehow have that in, interchange to go and think and go, yeah, I do need to check that. Um, but um, as a final point, we are all of us living in a cacocracy and we need to bloody well change it. So thank you very much for spending time with us. And uh, we really appreciate it. Subscribe, tell your friends. And we've both got Patreon and paypal and stuff like that for anybody yep. who feels like feels that, that we should continue doing this and not retire then um, you know kick in a few dollars that's always great um so thanks thanks chris it's always a tremendous pleasure big time man all right see you guys later bye-bye